Welcome to the Being Pregnant, Being a Parent Ask It Basket Workshop. My name is Carrie, and I'm a compulsive reader and bulimic, and your moderator for this meeting. Hi, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, um, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic devices be turned off um, to protect the anonymity, no photography or visual recording are allowed. Uh, the opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. D, an Ask It Basket is being circulated for the question and answer portion of this meeting. And E, this meeting is being taped. If you enjoy this workshop, we encourage you to stop by the tape table to order copies of this workshop or any other meeting. They are available on CD or as an electronic download. So, the format for this meeting is as follows. Two speakers will share for 25 minutes each, followed by 25 minutes of questions and answers. The topic for this session, again, is being pregnant, being a parent. And our first speaker is... We need to talk about... Is Christina. Um, I think that's it. Hi, I'm Christina. I'm a compulsive overeater. Can everybody hear me? Yeah, okay. So, since we have a really small group, I just wanted to maybe start out by getting a sense of where everybody's at. So, if you don't mind raising your hand, how many people here are already parents? Okay. How many people are pregnant and or thinking about contemplating the idea of becoming parents? Okay, great. So um, I will tell you a little bit about my, my OA story, um, and then I'll share about my experience as a parent in the program. I hope nobody came here to learn about being a parent of a teenager or anything like that, because I have a 14-month-old. And um, so... There are many, many more parenting milestones ahead of me that I don't have any experience with, but, um, but I'm really grateful to have been able to have, you know, an abstinent journey so far. So um, I came to Overeaters Anonymous in June of 1994, so it's been, will be actually next week, will be 16 years um, since my first OA meeting. And, um, and I got abstinent in October of 1994, so I've been abstinent for, that? years? Yeah, 15 years. Um, and, <laughs> um, and I'm, I can't, I mean, I could use up my entire 25 minutes to tell you guys about all the things that this program has changed in my life, but obviously that's not what, um, what we're here for, but I'll just kind of give you a brief overview. So I came to OA the week that I turned 18, and um, I was the youngest person in almost every meeting that I went to. Um, and as Nancy commented before, the last time we spoke at a, a convention together, we were at the young people's meeting, and now we're at the, the parents' meeting, so a lot of things have changed. I've really grown up in this program, and, um, and that's, been, that's been really wonderful, um, although it was kind of hard when I came in to have everybody be at such a different life stage. Now it's nicer, you know, because I have more in common with people. Um, but when I came to OA, I, I came because I was desperate, and I did not particularly want to come to OA. It didn't sound fun or cute 
or interesting. I came because I couldn't stop eating compulsively, and um, and I really hated myself. And I couldn't understand why if the thing I wanted most in the world um, was to be thin and have the perfect body because I thought that would equal the perfect life, then how come I couldn't stop eating? And um, it was it was a mystery to me. And when I got here, of course, I found out the reason why I couldn't stop eating was because I'm a compulsive overeater and I have a disease. And it doesn't matter what I want or, or do or don't want to do with the food. If I'm in the grips of the compulsion, I'm going to eat, whether my intention is to have a nice diet or to not eat at all or to eat a, a giant bat of something, if I'm in the grips of that compulsion, the end result is going to be I'm going to eat and I'm going to eat and I'm going to eat. And um, I I was really desperate and so I came to OA and um, I, it wasn't, uh, in some ways that I really knew that I was home from the beginning because I walked in and I heard people talking about things that I related to. Um, that they were talking about they were powerless over food and their lives were unmanageable and I didn't know before I came here that it was about more than the food um, but as soon as I heard that I knew that, that I was in the right place because my life was completely 100% unmanageable and um, like I said I was I was 18 I was living at home with my parents and um, going to school part-time and working part-time and um, and I just I was miserable I didn't have any friends I didn't have a boyfriend I thought I knew what I wanted to do for a career, but it was actually, it was something that I was working part-time doing, and I actually didn't, wasn't very happy at it, and I didn't have any long-term kind of goals, and um, I was just miserable. I hated my body with just a, a passion, and I was so full of anger and bitterness and bile that I just spewed out every time I opened my mouth. It felt like I was just so mean and nasty to my family members, and um, I was in fear and self-pity and self-hatred and resentment all the time, and it was just a mess. And um, I, I thought, you know, that I was eating compulsively because of my family or because of this or because of that. And then I came here and I found out that I eat compulsively because I'm a compulsive overeater and that the solution is here in these rooms. Um, so I haven't always been, had the best attitude about, about recovery. When I first came, I kind of felt like um, I didn't like the God stuff. That really freaked me out. But people said, find your own higher power. Keep coming back. There were times where I hated everybody in the room, but I kept coming back because I knew this was where I needed to be. Um, and I've worked the steps. You know, I, I have had many different sponsors over my time in this program. And um, my mo current sponsor I've been working with for a number of years. I sponsor other people. I go to meetings regularly. I try to do service. Um, I have a food plan that I follow. Um, I consider myself to be kind of ag atheist, agnostic inclined, but I have a, a higher power, although I don't think of it as God, that I relate to and turn things over to. So kind of a quick nutshell of what, what my, my program looks like. Um, but to talk more specifically about the topic, so um, I, I had been here for, um, I had been here for, I guess, um, well, I can't do the math in my head because I'm talking and I'm nervous. But um, <laughs> so I got pregnant in in 2008. So that was two years ago, um, and so I guess I'd been here for 14 years. So in the time that I'd been in program, I'd seen um, some people get pregnant and have children. And I was fortunate that in my area, I live in Oakland, um, across the bay, there'd been a number of women who gotten pregnant in the program and had kids like a couple within the couple years before I got pregnant. And so I was fortunate that I saw some other people do it. And way before that, there was like another crop of women who did it like eight to 10 years before that, who, you know, some of them are still around and they go to my meetings. Um, and some of them have moved out of the area, but I know they're still in the program and abstinent. 
So I've seen women women do it. I've seen women get pregnant, stay abstinent through their pregnancies, keep coming back after they had the baby. And I'd also seen people leave, you know, people who kept coming to the rooms while they were pregnant, and then they would leave afterwards. And I didn't really understand that until it, I became a parent. And, um, and I realized how there's that... I mean, first of all, there's that addict voice that says, well, you know, you're okay. You probably don't have to go to a meeting. You probably, you know, don't have to make that phone call. You've been absent a long time. You're probably okay. And you couple that with that mom guilt voice that says, but I have my baby. Like, I need my baby. I can't leave. You know, I have to stay here. And I got it all of a sudden. Why all these, I mean, add that to the logistical things of being a parent and having to find a babysitter or negotiate with your partner or, you know, time it around the nap or, um, I, I suddenly realized why why people have kids and they don't come back, and um, so I feel really fortunate that I'm still here, and um, I think I can only chalk it up to just the fact that I kept coming back regularly after my daughter was born. Um, ten days after she was born, I went back to my first meeting and I brought her with me and. Um, and I just kept, you know, every I had a meeting that I would go to every week that I would just bring her with me until she got too old um, and was kind of distracting. And then I, you know, negotiated childcare and stuff like that. But just coming back right after I had her and um, and just not letting myself get pulled away and making sure that this state of commitment in my life has been really, really, really huge. Um, so I'll, let me go back and talk a little bit about what it was like being pregnant. So before I got pregnant... Um, my food plan has changed over the years that I've been in program. Initially, when I came in, um, for a long time, I had a three-meal-a-day kind of program, and it was very, like, if it wasn't my meal time, I didn't eat. And I went to a lot of events, you know, like family events or restaurant outings and stuff where it wasn't my meal time, and so I just didn't eat. And, um, and I would eat my, my meal before or after or whatever, but my food plan was very kind of like, this is, this is what it is. And um, about uh, five, four or five years ago, um, I developed or I got diagnosed with um, a chronic digestive uh, illness and I had to change the way that I eat. And part of that involved um, being, and it was funny because I was abstinent for like 10 years or something at that point. I was like, how could I have digestive problems? I'm you know, eating the best I've ever eaten in my life and have been for years, but there it was, life is random. Um, and so I had to change my food plan and I had to be a little bit more flexible and not have maybe three bigger meals, but have three smaller meals and a couple of snacks and um, that came in really handy when I got pregnant because um, as those of you who have already been pregnant know it's it's an incredible thing that happens to your body when you get pregnant and everybody reacts a, a little bit differently but for most people it means that the way you eat probably is going to change and the way that I eat definitely had to change and I remember calling other people in the program um, when I was in my early weeks of pregnancy I didn't want to tell a lot of people obviously because there's that whole thing about uh, most people don't like to tell too early. Um, so I told a few close family members, and I told some people in the program who'd been abstinent through their pregnancies because I knew that I needed to be able to have people to call. So even if they weren't, like, close buddies of mine already, I knew that I needed to have them as resources so I could call and say, well, what did you do when you had, you know, how did you change your food? How did you do what? And I found that a lot of the people kind of said the same thing when I asked them about their food. They kind of said, well, I had to really stick close to my higher power. And... Um, and that was really what I had to do because my food plan had to change and there wasn't anybody who could tell me how it had to change. I definitely called my, um, my OBGYN and I asked her, like, okay, so how many calories should I be eating and is there any foods I should avoid? I was very first-time mother, kind of nervous, calling when I'm, like, four weeks pregnant, asking her a million thousand questions. 
And um, she was very nice and kind of told me, well, you know, other than avoiding a few things, you don't really have to worry about it. You, just, you know, just eat, a, you know, about the same use as you've been eating or maybe a little bit more. It'll be fine, you know. And um, so <laughs> she didn't have a lot of specific things to tell me. And the people in the program kind of said I had to just sit c close to my higher power. And in the end, that was what I found I had to do, was I had to really turn my food over. And that's been an important part of my abstinence, as long as I've been abstinent, has been really turning my food over. Because food plans change. You know, they change, as I've experienced it, for medical reasons, for pregnancy. They, you know, if I have the flu, my food plan is going to be different than a day when I'm healthy. Um, there have been times in my life where I've had really active jobs that were very physical and I ate more food then. So my food plan has changed a lot over the years, although, you know, some of the basic components are the same. There's still certain foods I just don't eat because they don't work for me. But the timing, the amount, you know, lots of things have changed in my food plan. And so it's really important for me to stick close to a higher power and be turning it over and seeking guidance with my food, um, regardless of, of where I'm at. But it's not, it, it, that came in to be especially important while I was pregnant. Um, because there were days in my first trimester where I was just so nauseous and um, and I remember just thinking, what can I eat for lunch that doesn't make me want to puke, you know? Um, I remember eating, uh, I'm a vegetarian, so I eat a lot of like tofu products, like fake lunch meat with avocado on it for lunch. Because it was like, that won't make me puke, and that's the only thing I can look at right now. Um, it, so I was abstinent, and it looked different than it had looked before. And I remember years ago, a friend of mine who, um, who I saw today, who's still abstinent, who has a couple kids and had abstinent pregnancies, I remember her talking to me about how when she was pregnant, she she had to eat crackers and stuff like this, you know, for the nausea. And I remember the day when um, when I'd been getting out of bed and just like you know dry heaving first thing in the morning, and I said, I think I have to eat some crackers before I get out of bed in the morning because it doesn't really work to get up and want to puke first thing in the morning. And so I put the crackers by my bed and I just was like, if she could do it, I can do it, you know. I mean, the crackers are okay; they're in my food plan. It's not like anything that's bad for me. But my routine for years and years in this program was to get out of bed and pray before I ate anything. And that was how I always did. I always got out of bed and got on my knees in the morning and then I had breakfast. And all of a sudden, I needed to put something in my stomach first thing in the morning. And so I put some crackers by the bedside and I talked about it with my sponsor and we figured out, okay, I'll have like whatever it was, five crackers in the morning. So I had just enough in my stomach to settle it. And then I would get up and say my prayers and then eat my, my real breakfast. And so I had to make those kind of adjustments and, and I just had to be really in touch with my higher power and in touch with my sponsor and in touch with other people in the program around it so that it wouldn't be, you know, that kind of rationalizing. Um, and I didn't, you know, take back any foods that I don't eat, but like I said, the quantities and the timings and those kinds of things were definitely different. And um, a huge gift for me in this program has been release from body obsession. Um, I'm somebody who came into this program absolutely obsessed with my body and um, just to the point where, I, you know, I would be hours trying on clothes and thinking that everything, I hated the way that I looked in it. And it was really a miracle to get pregnant and to eat in a way that was very healthy and sane and appropriate and to gain a healthy amount of weight and to feel good about it. It was kind of weird in, in the first trimester when I was cut, like starting to gain weight, but it didn't necessarily look like pregnancy yet, like maybe I just put on a few pounds. That was a little weird, but I knew that it was not because I was not abstinent and binging or anything. I knew it was because I was gaining weight healthily, and that period passed, and then I got the cute little belly, and that was so much fun, and I had so much fun showing off my stomach. And, um, and at the end of my pregnancy, my doctor was like, wow, you gained, like you had like the perfect weight gain. You gained just the right amount of weight. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, fucking like, Thanks to OA, that is such a gift. 
because I could have easily been one of those people who gained way, way, way too much weight. And, um, and I didn't have to be. I gained the right amount of weight to, to give me a healthy pregnancy. And um, it came off fairly quickly after my daughter was born. Um, you know, I had to make more adjustments to my food after the birth. Um, people had told me that, you know, when you're breastfeeding, you're going to be eating even more calories than when you were pregnant. And I was so starving in those first couple of days after the birth. I think the combination of not eating for a couple of days while I was in labor and then the huge amount of energy that was exerted during labor and then, of course, breastfeeding and my body using all those calories there, I was, like, ravenous. And I remember just calling my sponsor and being like, I just had breakfast and I'm ravenous. I think I need to have more food, you know, like – I. It's, this is nothing that's ever happened to me before, but my body is telling me in no uncertain terms that, um, you know, I need to add some food to my food plan. So I figured that out, and I worked it out. And um, like I said, my daughter is 14 months now, and um, so my food has been gradually kind of decreasing um, in quantity as the breastfeeding. I'm still nursing her a little bit, but as it's been less frequent, my food has kind of gradually decreased. And... Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the food part of it. That, that's enough about the food. I mean, obviously the food is important to talk about because we're, you know, we're compulsive overeaters. We have issues with food. And um, I know that for me, I have to, my food is the first thing. If I'm not abstinent, then I can't have the spiritual and emotional recovery that this program promises. I can't work the steps. I can't be honest. I can't be happy, joyous, and free if I'm not abstinent. So the first thing I have to take care of um, throughout this journey has definitely been my food, but it hasn't been the only thing by any means because in my experience in this program has been that the food is the beginning, but it's not enough. Um, and I'm somebody who, when I was in early recovery, I wasn't real serious about working the steps, and I was abstinent and fucking miserable and crazy until I started working the steps. And then I got a little bit less crazy and a little bit less miserable and gradually happier and happier the longer I stuck around and the more I got into the steps. Um, so I've also had to work on my spiritual and emotional recovery as a parent. And I think um, there have been a few things that have, have really been difficult. And one of the first ones for me was fear. So I'm naturally a fearful person, and my brain goes to the worst-case scenario. Whatever, you know, the issue that's happening, it's going to be tough, and it's going to be this. You know, and, and I, I just have those hates in my head. And so it was really difficult while I was pregnant. I wanted to be like happy and glowing and sitting around rubbing my belly and beautiful, serene pregnant woman. And there were moments where I was like that, but there were also moments where I felt really fearful. You know, I was fearful during the first trimester of what if there's a miscarriage. Um, I know someone who um, her baby was born premature and the baby's totally fine, but her baby was supposed to be due about the same time mine was and her baby was born like 25 weeks. And that flipped me out. You know, I was like, even though her baby was totally fine and it's thriving now. You know, I was like, oh, my God, what if something like that could happen to me? Like I said, I have a chronic illness. I have Crohn's disease. And, you know, I had some symptoms of that during my pregnancy, and I had to take some medication for that. And, I, you know, my doctor said it's fine. It's not going to have any adverse effects on the baby. But I had a lot of fear around that. So there were all these ways that, um, that the fear came up for me during my pregnancy, and I really had to work my program around that because fear is one of my central character defects. And I think it's normal to feel a certain amount of fear when you're pregnant because there's a huge amount of uncertainty to being pregnant. And it's true, sometimes things don't go the way that we planned. Um, and it's a scary thing even if everything goes perfectly because it's a life-changing event. But from, I had to not let the fear take over my life. So I had to stay in close contact with my sponsor and, you know, talk with other people in the program so that the fear wouldn't take over my life. Um, and... 
Then the other really big thing that's, you know, involved my emotional and spiritual recovery has been, since my daughter has been born, how, how much that's changed my life. And in some ways that's been a wonderful, positive thing. I mean, I love her. Like, I, I just can't believe she is the best thing. You know, I, I just am amazed by her. I think she's awesome. And I have so much fun with her. And my life is so different than it was before. And in the first few weeks after she was born, before she was able to, like, focus her eyes and stuff, when she was just this little screaming thing that was waking me up constantly who didn't seem to know who I was, uh, there was, like, no emotional connection there, it seemed. What the fuck have I done? I can't, I can't, you know, my life has been taken over. And, and of course, then, you know, like the first time she, her eyes focused and she looked at me and it was like she knew who I was. And then she smiled and then she laughed and then now she totally loves me because I'm her mama. So, you know, those things got better and easier. But like in the very beginning, it was such a shock to have my life be so different and to not have the freedom that I'd taken for granted before to just do whatever I wanted. Um, you know, I'm just going to go to a meeting tonight. Like, you know, I'm just going to do that. Or I'm going to go to my yoga class. Or, uh, you know, I'm going to go to the bathroom. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to take a shower. <laughs> the most basic things that y- you take for granted that are so different when you're a parent. It was quite a shock to adjust to all of those. And and I had to learn how to how to do my life in a new way. And so I had to kind of let go of a lot of the things that had been my old habits and behaviors. And um, before I became a parent, I used to work out three times a week. I had yoga and dance classes I went to at, at three specific times. I had three specific meetings I went to. Set times I talked to my sponsor and my sponsees. And all of that in the early days was, of course, you know, shot to hell. And then gradually I started to put the pieces back. And like I said, from the time my daughter was two weeks old, I was going to one meeting a week. And then gradually I was able to work it out so I could go to two meetings a week. And today I go to two meetings a week. Um, It was really hard to find the time to exercise. Now I've been trying to exercise one day a week. Um, And I'd like to make that a little bit more. But it's kind of been a progress with putting my life back together. Um, I work work four days a week. And so that's been a complication for me, too, is I feel like my free time is so valuable. And my time with my daughter is so valuable because I feel like there's not enough of it. And so when I have that free time, I'm not going to rush off and leave her and do something um, unless it's really important. Like even coming here today, I had the total mom guilt. I was, my husband, God bless him, I love him, but he he was stayed up till like 5 in the morning last night playing on the computer. And I, when I woke up this morning, I was, I was like, what time did you go to bed? 5 in the morning. You know, I didn't say that. But in my mind, I was like, what the fuck are you thinking? You know I'm leaving today, and you have to take care of the baby all by yourself. Um, so I left the house, and she was mama, mama. She, you know, didn't want me to leave. And he's, like, bleary-eyed. And I just felt like, God, I'm the bad mom leaving my baby so I can go off and go to the convention. But goodbye. <laughs> um, and uh, so I don't know where I was going with that. But um, the mom guilt is, <laughs> is tough, you know. So I figured out how to work my life so that, I feel like I'm I'm not impacting my time with my daughter. Um, I go to a meeting one night a week where I'm able to put her down to bed because she goes to bed pretty early since she's young, and then go right afterwards. When I go to the gym, it's a night where I also can do that same thing. The timing of the class is late enough that I, I put her down, and I go. And I get to the class like 10 minutes late, but I don't feel like it's gotten in the way of our time. And then I go to one meeting on the weekend. That's a day where I've been with her all day, so I feel okay about going for a couple hours and leaving her with um, one of her grandparents or a family friend to put her to bed. So I figured out how to work my life and my program in ways. Um, and like I talk to my sponsor, my sponsees after she goes to bed. 
so that I feel like I'm able to show up for my daughter and be of service to her and be the kind of mom that I want to be, you know, be present, um, spend time with her, play with her, laugh, and, you know, just be around as much as I can, given the my time constraints with work, be around as much as I can for her and still fit in the things I need to do for myself in a way so that I don't feel like I'm neglecting her, but I also don't feel like I'm neglecting myself. So that's been a, a challenge that I suspect is probably ongoing um, that I'll be facing you know, maybe for the rest of my life. Um, and my sponsor has a, a grown, has a, a granddaughter and then a, a, her child is close to my age. And so she'll talk to me about like, even now as a mom, like it's obviously much different, but even now as a mom, there's certain things that she struggles with or has to work her program around. So I know this is a lifelong journey that I get to work my program around being a parent. But I'm really grateful that I have other women in the program. So for any of you who feel like you don't have that support network, um, you know, talk to me, talk to us after the meeting. I'm always happy to take phone calls. Um, and I think it's really important to build that network of other people in the program who are going through the same thing. I've done that over the years when it's been, you know, when I was dealing with um, chronic illness stuff, finding other people in the program I could call who were experiencing that. When I was a student, calling other people in the program who were students who they could relate to that. And now being a parent, you know, finding other people who I respect their recovery and I can talk to them about what it's like to, to be a parent and try to be in recovery. That's been really, really important. So I encourage you guys to, you know, meet other people like that uh, if you don't already have those people. And definitely anybody who wants my number, I'm happy to give it to you. Um, and the other thing I want to say just quickly before, because I know I only have a couple more minutes, is that... Um, I've, so I've been working the steps. When my daughter was born, I've been going through the steps, and I got us to step nine. And then after she was born, um, we started over at step one, and I'll come back to that ninth step that I was in the middle of because I really realized I needed to go back to step one because being a parent is like powerlessness in a whole new way. And I kind of got a glimpse of that while I was pregnant, and then when she was here, I really, really got it. And especially like when I went back to work, I went back to work when she was 14 weeks, so she was pretty young, and. I was leaving her with with family. It's not like I had to drop her off with a stranger or something, but still, the fact that she was out of my care and I didn't know, like, well, are they going to take care of her right? Like, is she going to get a good nap or, you know, whatever. I just, I've had to experience powerlessness in a whole new way, and so I've been working the steps again. And a big sticking point for me this time around, um, because like I said before, I kind of consider myself to be... Um, agnostic verging on the atheist side is that I don't believe there's a higher power that takes care of things and that orchestrates events and that's going to make things go okay. There's too much evidence in the world that to me says that that's not true. I do believe that I have a higher power that keeps me abstinent, that can help me to live a life that's sane and happy and useful, that can help me to um, not have to act out my character defects. I believe that I have that higher power, but I don't believe there's something that's taking control of external events. Um, my higher power is more of an internal thing. So I had a lot of trouble with this idea. Of, so now, thanks, I'll wrap up. I have this daughter who I love more than anything in the world, and she's not in my control. You know, like I have to go to work. I have to leave her with somebody. And, or even, you know, like what if something happens to her that's just totally out of my control, That you know, even while I'm with her? And, and so I've been reworking the steps and re looking again at my conception of a higher power and just being okay with the idea that, even though there's not something that, I, even though I don't feel like there's something that controls things, so I can't turn her over and say, take care of her, let her be okay, that I can kind of accept that I'm not in charge and let go of trying to be in control and kind of be more in the stream of what, how life is going to go. And I feel a lot more sanity with that. And I've really had to incorporate in my step work my relationship with my husband because 
it's been enormously stressful having a child and now having to negotiate with each other. And whereas before we were kind of independent people who lived together and came together and did our own thing and then, you know, went and, and did whatever we wanted, had our times when we went out, now I can't go out without negotiating with him or hiring a babysitter and we have to make all these shared decisions about the baby. And uh, that has been a huge, huge challenge. So, um, you know, I've had to work my program on the fact that I'm powerless over him and I'm powerless over his relationship with our child. And, you know, not that he's a bad dad, just that he's not me. You know, he doesn't do it the way I would do it. And um, so there's no shortage of things that I have to work my program around. Um, as it relates to being a parent, but I feel so blessed. Um, I'm not obsessed with food. I eat my abstinent food and go on with my day. You know, my daughter eats her food. It's not my food. I don't eat it. Not that she's anything junky, but she just eats some things that I don't eat. Um, and I get to have a life that's really, actually, really wonderful, and I wouldn't have any of it if it wasn't for being abstinent and for having the, the steps and the fellowship of this program to help me to live in a way that, um, you know, can approach happy, joyous, and free. So I hope I've said something that's useful. And if not, you get to hear Nancy. Thanks. Thanks, Christina. And um, our second speaker is Nancy. I'm Nancy, a compulsive reader. Really, really glad to be here today, although I did have uh, serious mom guilt as well as I was leaving my husband home with two kids. Um, so I guess just to give a little bit of background myself, I've also been in the program a long time. I went to my first meeting when I was 14 because I got introduced to the 12 steps uh, through Alateen at age 10. So. Um, so I've, you know, kind of grown up with the 12 steps and grown up in the program um, and has really, you know, transformed my life. I got abstinent from sugar and other substances at age 19, so I've been, um, you know, and, and over the years, I mean, that's like I'm 36 now, so it's a lot of years and a lot of things have changed. My food plans changed a lot. Um, and what you know, what I've, what I keep coming back to is that the food plan that works best for me is a food plan where at least some of the food is weighed and measured because I don't like. It doesn't really, I don't know. The, I don't think the channels to God are very open when I'm having to make food decisions. So the idea of like, um, you know, having God help me make these decisions in the moment doesn't work for me at all. I have to have like you know, here's my Tupperware with the food that I weighed and measured, and that's my lunch, you know. Um, <clears throat> that tends to work better for me. Um, so uh, when I got pregnant for the first time, you know, that was a big, big question mark for me was how is this, you know, how is this food plan going to work? And both times I got pregnant, I had just, you know, my, I mean, my recovery over the years has been very cyclic. You know, I'll have... I'll have a period of time where I'm sort of, you know, the OA poster child and I'm like doing everything I'm supposed to do and I'm, um, you know, weighing and measuring everything and I'm losing weight and then I'll be, you know, possessed by rebellion or I'll go into a really hard time in my life and I'll kind of pull back a little bit and it's, it's been sort of like an ebb and flow over the years and um, I think, you know, maybe that's just the way it is uh, for me. But um, both times that I got pregnant, I had just 
sort of recommitted to my weight and measured abstinence and I'd just gotten sort of things, you know, on track and having really clean boundaries with food and then bam, you know, pregnant. And um, so it also, my experience of, um, of pregnancy and getting pregnant, I also just wanted to say because I know that there's a lot of people who I've known who've struggled with getting pregnant, you know, and friends I've had who've been, you know, the sort of the hopes that rise as your period seems like maybe it's late and then no, it's here after all, and then oh, maybe it's late and then no, it's here after all, and that's sort of like the emotional upheavals that go along with that can I know be really trying for abstinence as well. And the the power, like for me, you know, I had I had it all figured out. I was just finishing. I was going to be finishing with this uh, program in uh, about nine months, and I thought, well, I'm not going to get pregnant right away. So I had the IUD taken out nine months before the end of this program, and like my due date, I was actually induced on graduation night. So it was like, um, yes, I was pregnant for the whole last nine months, and I hadn't. That wasn't my plan. You know, my plan was to it will take me at least, you know, three to six months to get pregnant. Like, that was my timeline. That's what I told God I wanted, but that's not what I got. And I actually had um, an experience with preterm labor at 29 weeks and had to actually temporarily drop out of my program. And that was an interesting experience because it was very much, um, in some ways, uh, God doing for me what I could not do for myself. The program I was in was very intense, and I was not able to devote any time to self-nurturing, to you know, really to uh, kind of being in recovery. I was just basically in major survival mode and having that, you know, having to go out on bed rest, all of a sudden I was learning all these things. You know, I had to learn to ask for help. I actually had um, friends come over for um, a baby shower and I'd, I'd put up this sign that said, you know, come entertain Nancy. And people, I made everyone sign up for a time slot at which they would come and, like, bring me a movie or bring me some takeout or, like, you know, come over for game night or something because I knew that I was going to be going stir crazy if I didn't ask for help. And this program has helped me um, learn to ask for help. And I also got the experience of just being. You know, I've always been sort of a human doing, not a human being. And uh, this was a really great experience that just, you know, what is my job? I'm just dating. Like, all I can do is, you know, do what I can to keep this baby inside and keep my uterus calm, you know, and not not contracting. And obviously, I don't really have a lot of control over that. But keeping calm and keeping everything mellow is about the best I can do. Um, <clears throat> and in terms of uh, my body and, and how that felt when I was first pregnant, it really dramatically changed my view of my body. I mean, up till that point, my body had been, you know, what what are women's bodies for? You know, to attract a mate, you know, as like an object object of desire, object of attraction, whatever. Um, maybe a little physicality, you know, my body is to scale mountains. Not, not that I ever, I was never much of an exerciser athlete, so that wasn't, I, w I wasn't really big into that, that use of my body anyway. So, um, so I just... It was it was really transformative in how I viewed my body. Um, I got to experience this incredible self love that I hadn't really experienced in that way before. Like you know, I'm I'm kind of like a I like my body, you know, from here to here, uh, from here up and from here down, you know, and like this part in the middle I'm not so excited about. 
and just to have um you know just to have this experience of like rubbing my belly and saying I love you I love you I love you you know you're so um, precious to me was really like I I took that in like uh, to myself as well instead of just this other being inside me and and just the the phenomenal I mean I know a fair amount about like embryology and stuff and the the phenomenal thought of what was happening inside my body and that my body was like creating this human being like how crazy is that and how amazing is that and how miraculous and those those kinds of thoughts really changed what um like how amazing I felt like my body you know my body is like an amazing thing like I created these two lives and and they're amazing people so uh, and then the other thing is in terms of viewing my body as a place to live was also an interesting change at the time like I said I was in this intense program and I had a little bit of a diet coke addiction I think I was having and I filled it up pretty full of ice. There's a lot of ice in there, too. But I was having, like, three 32-ounce Diet Cokes a day. Um, needless to say, I was also having, like, a lot of palpitations and, and other issues. But I thought as I was um, – I don't think I was pregnant yet. I think I was thinking about taking the IUD out. And I thought, you know, I probably shouldn't have so much crap chemicals in my body if I'm thinking about getting pregnant because I want my body to be a nice place to live for nine months. And then my next thought was, well, but I have to live in this body for 36 years. Like, why why not make my body a nice place to live all the time? Like, this is, this is where I live. This is my home. Uh, and so, so that was kind of a neat way, you know, another change in how I thought about my body. Uh, and then in terms of, you know, I related a lot to the discussion of um, powerlessness and fear. And for me, I'd actually been around labor and delivery a lot, and um, and I knew that this was, like, one of the hardest things that people do. You know, I knew that, that this was, you know, maybe for men it's going off to battle or something, and that for women it's birthing babies, and, uh, and that, that this was going to be a real challenge, and that for me the main thing wasn't so much like the factual knowledge of what happens during labor and delivery, but but it was it was all about managing fear and anxiety. And I knew that if I could figure out a way to manage fear and anxiety or have those things lifted from me, that it would be smooth sailing because my body knows what to do, right? Like women have been having babies for, for centuries and my body would figure out what to do if I could just get like this part out of the way and be relying on like my midbrain. Um, so I, uh, I, because of my experience in the program and knowing that this was kind of a spiritual journey I was on, I got hooked up with this mindfulness-based childbirth class, which was all about like meditation and staying in the moment, and it was really synergistic with my program. Like the the things that I was doing in my program, and then this mindfulness-based staying in the moment, just really helped, and I wound up having. Um, the most beautiful birthing experience um, with my with my daughter. Of course, I, I have to qualify that for for those who did not have beautiful birthing experiences that that she was actually only six pounds. So um, so it's a little bit easier to push out a six pound baby than a larger baby. So um, so I was blessed in that way as well. But it was just a really great, very spiritual experience. I had a doula there who you know kind of helped. Um, I just you know 
I don't I don't even remember. It was just like, you know, this endorphin sort of high and also incredibly the most painful thing I've ever been through. But um but like a lot, you know, but it was also some something sort of unforgettable and um and that was an amazing experience. And then the newborn period, you know, I'm just kind of I didn't know really know how to do this. I'm just kind of going chronologically. Um I was also sort of, you know, the the powerlessness and the, you know, sort of it's like getting hit by a Mack truck when you're like, I mean, pe- people tell you, oh, you can't prepare for this or, oh, you know, your life will never be the same. And, like, people tell you that and you're like, yeah, 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 shut up. You're freaking me out. Um, but it, it's it's true, but it's also something that you can't really prepare for. You just, it, it just happens and it's um, amazing and hard and, fascinating and all these things and and my uh having been through it twice the the newborn period the first the first time I was very concerned with trying to get it right you know like I read a lot of books and I wanted to um you know do the like sleeping just right you, you know I just wanted to get everything right and the second time around I was like, you know what? It's all about just survival for the first three months. Like, just whatever you have to do. If it's nursing the kid in front of West Wing, like, the, I watched the entire show of West Wing, which is, like, what, six seasons or something, um, with my son because I was like, this is fun. It's entertaining. I'm trapped under a sleeping baby. He's nursing, you know, whatever. This is, like, going to get me through. West Wing is going to get me through this newborn period. And it was just such a more self-forgiving way of, being, you know, instead of I, the first time I was, you know, I'm not trying to trash like particular approaches, but the first time I was like doing the baby whisperer, and so I was like doing this shush pat thing, you know, for where I was like, like, uh, you know, leaning over my daughter's crib at like this back breaking thing, shushing and patting for 20 minutes, and if I stopped before 20 minutes, I would like and I left the room and then she wake woke up I'd be full of self-recrimination and it was just and and I was reduced to tears on like a daily basis because it was making me nutty so um, I don't know why I'm sharing that particular story but but it just was you know it just sort of was a lesson I learned is just just survive for the first three months and um then the nursing is definitely a was definitely a huge thing too in terms of uh, just brought up a whole lot of issues. I mean, it was um, the idea of feeding another human being with my body. I mean, that's just kind of a weird concept to begin with. And being responsible for somebody else's, you know, like caloric intake. I don't know how else to say it. It, it also affected my food, which I was hugely resentful towards my baby and the whole situation about because you know, we, we had um, issues with colic, like every new parent does, or, you know, not every new parent, but we had issues with, um, you know, gassiness and crying. And so, like, also most nursing moms I've talked to, I tried cutting out dairy. I tried cutting out this. I tried cutting out that. And basically, I just got more and more pissed off about, like, you know, don't fuck with my food. And, um, and so it brought that up. And then I was having issues with my husband around it because... He would always be if he if he caught me reading a magazine or something he'd be like shouldn't you be pumping and I would just be like <laughs> speechless and uh, 
and he would say, you know, but but rest is best, and if I could do it, I would, and and all this stuff, and I just wanted to rip his head off, and of course being sleep deprived, and you know all these other things, um, and. I just, you know, it brought up these issues and also, you know, breasts as being a part of my sexuality. Like, I, I don't know, I, I mean, I don't, don't want to be, you know, graphic, but I just felt like I was, you know, postmenopausal uh, in some areas with all the, like, lack of estrogen that was in my body. And, um, and that I didn't enjoy. And I just started after a while to feel like I wanted my body back. You know, nursing and breastfeeding was, was a miraculous bonding experience and everything. And it was really wonderful. But I also, I also, it, it, it sort of brought to a head this sort of um, uh, tension between my needs and my baby's needs. And that's a tension that I think goes through all of parenting. Um, and it's, it started in that sense. I was like, you know, this is my body, and I should have jurisdiction over it. And if, you know, if I don't want to be hooked up to a machine being milked, then I shouldn't have to do that. But on the other hand, like this baby needs this milk, and it's got antibodies, and it's got like all this amazing stuff in it. And so, you know, it's just it just sort of brought all that sort of to a head. And so, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, and then the the, in terms of parenthood and what I'm dealing with now, so now I have a almost four-year-old and a year-and-a-half-old. And, a half old. and um, throughout the, the course with both of them, you know, there's been a lot of sort of uncertainty about what, like, you know, we'll come to a point where I'll be unsure what the right course is, you know, um, what the right thing is. To, what, like, what's the next right thing in this situation? And sleep training was was the first one and um and I, it was sort of illustrative of a lot of things about me my my um issues with sleep training so i i got to the point with my daughter where you know we were bouncing her on the bouncy ball for 45 minutes to get her to fall asleep and then she would wake up you know 30 minutes later or an hour later and we'd have to do it all over again and and then it got to the point where we were bouncing her while she screamed for 45 minutes. And finally I realized, like, if she's going to be screaming in my ear for 45 minutes while I'm trying to bounce her to sleep, I think we just need to do the cry it out thing and let her cry not in my ear. And so I um, I wound up, like, completely ferberizing. And to people who don't know what that is, there's this guy who wrote this book about sleep training, and I totally... Uh, you know, read the book and did it by the book, and 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 I'm not trying to espouse a particular book or approach. I'm just saying that, like for me, it, it it was about sort of turning it over, right? Like like I write out my food, and then I just do the algorithm of my food plan. And I needed that. I needed some guy who said he was an expert, who wrote a book. It's got an algorithm. I'm just going to follow the algorithm and trust that like my baby will turn out okay. And it, you know, and, and we can have our life back. You know, this is sort of, was sort of my approach. And and the the first time it wasn't actually that hard because I was, you know, we were like, we'd had it up to here with the screaming and the trying to get the baby to fall asleep. But the second time, it was really sweet. I knew it was my last baby. And, um, and I didn't, like a big part of me didn't want to do any sleep training. I wanted to keep sleeping with him and having him wake me up every one to three hours. 
uh, to nurse throughout the night. And um, but, but there was part of it that was really wonderful. But then on the other hand, I missed hanging out with my daughter because um, he was taking up so much of my time because he was definitely uh, like mommy only. Mommy's the only one who, all, who I was the only one who could calm him down or get him to fall asleep. So, so I just felt like I couldn't sort of keep giving and giving and giving. And so I um, I sleep trained him kind of early. And my husband also was completely disinterested in helping with it because unlike the first one where he'd been bouncing and bouncing and bouncing along with me, with this one it was just me waking up every one and a half hours while he slept on the couch so that he could deal with our daughter, you know, so he could have a good night's sleep and be a decent parent to her. So we were kind of both like single parents of, you know, of our respective babies for a little while which was challenging and that 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 night where I was um sleep training max by myself I had I read the big book I was like what have other people gone to in times of crisis the big book and so I just kept reading the big book that whole night you know I was up with him all, uh, he was like crying half the night and I was just up you know in the room I was like I was like you know I think I'm doing the right thing I think I'm doing the right thing read the big book read the big book and I totally got through that night and you know a week later everything was better uh, not that it solved all the problems, but it just, like, again, I was able to put him down and go play with my daughter or put him down and hang out with my husband or put him down. And, you know, so it just that really helped a lot in terms of uh, the issue for our particular family. And I do the same thing, um, like, during temper tantrums. My daughter's now at the age where she has some doozy temper tantrums. And I'm not sure what to do a lot of the time. I don't know, should I, you know put her in her room where she can be by herself um, and uh, sort of have her work on self-calming, you know, that kind of thing, and, like, sort of upset myself, which is what my husband does. He's like, you know, if you don't stop your type of dancing right now, I'm putting you in time out until you calm down. And, again, that's not, not like, my approach to, to parenting, but she calms down a lot quicker with him. Go figure. Um, and... Uh, but with me, I'm kind of more about, like, letting her feel her feelings and just sort of being, like, a loving presence and, like, hoping that that will calm her down. And I, But I don't know what the right thing is to do a lot of the time. So I say the serenity prayer. You know, God, grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, blah, blah, And I'm, I kind of go through that with, um, you know, the, like in the middle of a temper tantrum and all that stuff. Um, and I guess I have a few, few minutes left that I wanted to talk about um, – one thing that was actually just up for me now, I just had a conversation with, with a friend of mine who's also a mom in recovery who's struggling, and um, and it's just something that I, I feel like I see every new mom, myself included, you know, kind of struggle with, um, because especially in the beginning, you, you do kind of pull into this insular world that is like, you know, the, the little nuclear family, and um, and then you have to kind of branch out again. I think I think it, that was talked about before, too, kind of getting the pieces, you know, little pieces of, of your life back. Um, and if, if that doesn't happen, you know, if you stay in this kind of little insular world, it can be really hard to stay abstinent and stay in, like, on a recovery path. And that is totally something that happened to me, um, after my daughter was born, you know, I was going to one meeting a week, and it was a mom's group meeting where we would get together with our babies, which was super fun, 
But and we talk, we'd like check in and share and talk about programs and stuff. And that was the only meeting I was going to. And you can't. I mean, my daughter was older than some of the other people. Like a lot of the other people had nursing babies and stuff who could just kind of stay put. But my daughter was kind of wandering off, and so it was not really a meeting. I mean, it was like hanging out with some girlfriends more than a, a meeting in that sense because of all these distractions. So. Um, I was finding I was having these insane thoughts. I was like trying to figure out. There was, it came to it came to a culmination where one night there was there's this Mexican place down the road. and There's this meal there that I like that's abstinent, but it's you know it's a large meal. It's very carb heavy. You know, so it's a little bit sexy. And I was thinking, I really want to get this thing because I because I need to escape and I need to food to deal with what I'm going through. So I'm like, how can I get this? You know, could I? Could I, like, my daughter is taking a nap. Could I just run down? I'm like, no, they'd call CPS on me. Hmm. Could I, like, wait till she wakes up and put her in the car and then go? And then how would I get her out of the car and go into the rest? Like, I was, I was trying to figure out how to get the food. And all of a sudden, I was like, this is how... This is what happens with crack mothers. You know, this is what, like, this is how babies get found because their mom is, like, trying to figure out how she's going to score, and she goes out and, you know, doesn't come back for a week because she's on a crack binge. I'm like, I am a crack mother, you know, with Mexican food. This is, like, and I realized that I was getting really crazy, and so I called my sponsor and told her about it, and she's like, how many meetings are you going to? I I love my sponsor at the time that that, that's what she said because she could have said like what's going on for you you know can you like get down to you know your feelings about what what was going on for you when you had that thought no she was like how many meetings are you going to and I said I was going to one mom's group meeting and uh, and she said you know you really need to um, go to more meetings so I I called my husband and I realized I can't I can't go to more meetings without changing something major in my life. Like, I, I'll have to negotiate. I'll have to, you know, change something. And then I go, aha, nothing changes if nothing changes, right? So I called my husband up and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose my abstinence unless I go to more meetings. I'm scared. And he said, if that's what you need, then we'll figure it out. God bless him. And uh, and so we did. And so uh, to wrap up, I, my my point of that story is that um, is that you know your abstinence, all of our abstinence needs to be the most important thing. And if you can't have peanut butter in your house, your kid doesn't need peanut butter sandwiches. If you can't have you know certain things in the house, like kids survive without that crap. You know that a lot of that stuff's not really good for them anyway. And I'll um, uh, sign off there. But just just that. You know, we can create happy lives for our children and ourselves that, um, you know, your needs matter, too. We live in a culture where the kids' needs are what's important, but your needs matter, too. You're, like, an equal partner in this parent-child thing, and so you got to figure out what you need for yourself and do it because that's what kids really need is sane parents and not, uh, not you know, insane, self-sacrificing, resentful, crazy people. So, uh, thanks. Um, the speakers will now draw questions from the asket basket for the remainder of the meeting. Okay. Um, 
So this one says, can you talk a little bit about how you make food choices for your children? Also, how do these, do these affect the choices you make in your abstinence? How has it helped your recovery? Um, I guess I'll go first since I'm already standing here. Um, so like I said, my daughter is 14 months, so she doesn't eat all that much food yet. I mean, she eats a lot of food, but um, we have a lot of control over it. She's not going to school or anything like that. Uh, and I'll, basically, I feed her a lot of the same things that, that, um, that I eat. The only thing she eats that I don't eat is dairy because um, I'm a pretty strict vegetarian, um, but she eats cheese and milk and stuff like that. So I just kind of try to think about, I mean, I got some books on childhood nutrition and stuff to try to make sure I'm giving her what she needs because I know kids' needs are not the same as adults. But um, I just feed her healthy food. And um, if she doesn't like the cauliflower, then I bring out the zucchini or I bring out the carrots or whatever. If she doesn't want, you know, pear, then I give her watermelon or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I try to just give her different healthy choices and I don't offer anything that I feel like I wouldn't be comfortable with putting in my own body um, in terms of health-wise. And I know that's going to change when she gets older and she has more autonomy and she goes and has friends and eats crap at their house. And I'm sure grandparents feed her stuff that I don't have. But in our house, she eats really healthy and, um, and I feel really good about that. And her food is her food. It's not my food, which is kind of weird because there's a, such, this intimate bond between us. But, like, when we're eating, I don't finish off her food or anything like that. If she doesn't finish it, I put it back in the fridge for later. Or if it's kind of gross, I throw it out. Like, I don't eat. I don't finish off her food. If she's having a snack and it's not my meal time, I don't snack with her. Um, you know, I eat my food and she has her food and then I get to be sane. And as Nancy said, you know, being a sane mom is pretty damn important. I, um, I'm glad that somebody asked this question because, um, because I did want to talk about that a little bit more. Um, so definitely for my four-year-old, I mean, she is all about, you know, birthday parties and, cup, you know, cupcakes and cakes and ice cream, and she just would eat sweets all the time if she could. Uh, and she never, she was never like that before. She was kind of a, you know, as a baby and a toddler, she would just kind of eat everything. And now she's, it's really hard to get her to eat vegetables. So I've been kind of racking my, my brains about what to do about that. And um, one of the things I've discovered recently is, is, is what we call face snacks, where um, I make a face out of different food. Um, and I got her to eat more cherry tomatoes than I've ever been able to get her to eat by making them into hair. So we have like, you know, like a cashews for eyebrows and a cracker for eyes and a, um, you know, like a some kind of piece of fruit for a mouth or whatever. And, and it, it's a way of like trying to get her to eat a well-balanced meal in a, in a little bit of a sneaky way because she'll eat something if it's an eyebrow that she wouldn't eat if it were, you know, a pea. So, um, so that's, that's one thing I've been doing lately. And then the other thing is because you know, it's really easy to just let kids snack all the time. And I, I work actually in a setting where I see a lot of obese children. And some of the things that I see parents doing, and you, I mean, you see it at the park too, you know, is, is this idea that a bag of Doritos is not a single serving, you know, and you wouldn't give that, like you shouldn't give that to a kid. And so, so we, you know, I, we always dole things out in small quantities. So I have a whole bunch of like kid-sized Tupperwares and when we go to the park, I take, like, just a handful of various things, and I try to have, like, one of each food group. 
and then I let her choose what she wants to eat, but I don't have to worry that she's going to overeat because I've, I've already packed just a child-sized portion of each of these things, and if she eats all the whatever starchy thing first because that's what she likes and all that's left is the carrot sticks, um, if she's hungry, she'll eat it. If she's not, she won't. And I'm, I don't like um, try to. I don't get into a power struggle about it. And then the the last thing I'll say about that is is I I'm also try to encourage like sitting down and eating things as a part of meals because I've, I've we were having for a while where she'd have like a snack on our way home from swimming class and then she'd get home and not be hungry for dinner. And so we're I'm, we're trying to do. She'll say, I want this snack, or I want a cracker, or whatever, and I'll say, yes, you can have a cracker. I'm going to put it on your plate at dinner, and, you know, go sit down, I'll bring your dinner over, and then I'll bring whatever I was going to give her for dinner, and I'll put, like, three crackers on the side. And so then instead of snacking before the meal, it's like the snack is a part of the meal, and she's sitting down, and there's, like, a start and a finish. I'm, I'm basically trying to give her the boundaries that, or some boundaries around food that I didn't have. Um, but it is tricky. Like the when when is the first time to give her sugar? Because I, uh, you know, I, I swore because I'm a total sugar addict, um, and I swore that I would try to keep her away from sugar as long as possible. And then when she went to her first birthday party, where there was just you know, I mean, we we live in Oakland and Berkeley, and so there's a lot of birthday parties you go to where it's you know banana nut bread cupcakes and you know a lot a lot of that kind of stuff. So, um, so the, but the first real party where there was like a you know cupcake and she's like, "Mommy, can I eat this?" I didn't even know, like I didn't know what to say, and uh, and I finally was like, "Am I going to be the parent who follows my kid around, not letting them eat sugar?" No, I don't really want to be that parent. So I just, I just turned her over to her higher power and said, "Sure, you can have half," you know, and just again like trying to set some boundaries, but it's it's hard, and I have to involve you know her higher power and. So I'll read this next one because it's kind of related. How do you choose food plans for your children? Do you watch for trigger foods? Um, and it's kind of funny because my daughter was on a food plan almost from the beginning because I had a nursing schedule. I, and I know there's all kinds of different philosophies about like unrestricted nursing versus schedule and stuff. And um, from the beginning, I was like, well, I need to have her on some kind of schedule so that I can, like, leave the house. Because if I want to go to a meeting, I need to be able to know, okay, so I can nurse her, you know, uh, at the right hour so that I can get out the door and then come back and she's not, you know, starving and screaming. So from pretty much from a couple of weeks old, I was kind of nursing her every two hours. And um, that way I felt like, okay, she's getting enough food and I can know that I have some structure to my day. And if I need to plan something like going to the store or going to a meeting, I can plan it around that. Um, and and as she's gotten older, I've kind of loosened things up a little bit and realized that she doesn't really need a food plan. Like, I need a food plan. I am a compulsive overeater. But she stops eating when she's full. And she's, you know, she, she might end up to have food issues later in life, but right now I don't see any evidence of that. So she's not really on a, she doesn't really need a food plan per se. I mean, we do have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then in between, I'll nurse her or give her milk or she'll have a snack if she's hungry. Um, so it's not just concept like eating whenever, whatever, with no structure. But but I feel like, you know, I, I try to be pretty flexible about it. If she's hungry and it's not a meal time, I give her a snack. And, you know, we have healthy foods in the house, so I'm giving her healthy foods. So it's nothing I feel 
bad about, and I'm just trying to learn to follow her cues, which is totally different, because for me, I need that structure, and I can't just eat when I'm hungry and stuff when I'm full or whatever, but for her, like, she, I feel like now that she's old enough to express her um, her needs and, and let me know when she's hungry or thirsty, it's my job to follow her cues and to give her healthy food and to not worry too much about, um, you know, about controlling it, because so far, you know, that doesn't seem to be an issue. So, anyway, you got the older kids. <laughs> So, um, what advice can you give when meeting numbers decrease, like when you're going to less meetings? How do you stay connected? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think, I think it's, it, I mean, I don't know. For me, meetings are really important, and um, and I, I feel like big picture, I need a minimum of three meetings a week to be. But that said, I only go to two meetings a week, so I'm a little insane. But um, but I have tried to do a few things. Like for instance, we there's a there's been a baby boom in the Oakland Berkeley uh, OA community, and so there's you know there's uh, six or seven people I know who have had babies recently, and we started a moms group. Um, where we meet once a month without the kids because we decided that that was better for her recovery. Um, so that's that's a way of like adding an extra meeting in that's only once a month. It's a very targeted targeted meeting, so it's easier to negotiate with my husband once a month rather than once a week. Um, another thing that people keep telling me about, which I haven't actually tried is yet, is phone meetings. That these are really available. And those are um, great to try at home, and you apparently you, people like. Uh, so apparently they have people from all over the world, you know, calling into these things. So you get the interesting perspectives from all over. So that's something that's really great. And then um, being in being in touch. I actually think it's great having sponsees because I was felt much less connected when I didn't have sponsees because then it was all up to me. It was all on me to call my sponsor. It was all on me to reach out to people and to be calling people. But now. Now, um, having two sponsees and a sponsor, I have people who will call me, and then also people, and I also have a scheduled appointment time with my sponsor, which really helps, because the sponsor that I had before my current sponsor, we kind of had an open-ended, like, call when you need something, but call at least, you know, once a week, and if some once a week would kind of stretch into once every three weeks, then, you know, it just, I just didn't feel connected. Um, but this this sponsor I have, you know, three times a week I have appointments and I set my phone to do an alarm so I remember to call her and um, that kind of thing's hard when you have a baby at home because you can't like guarantee that you know you might have a screaming baby in your ear when you're at your appointed time. But even then I can call and say, you know, look, now's not a good time. Will you be around in you know 20 minutes after I put him down for a nap? That kind of thing. So those are. Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, so f my experience with this was that, like I said, I used to go to three meetings a week. That's kind of been my regular number for a lot of years. And now I go to two meetings a week. Um, and right after my daughter was born, in the, in the very early days I was going to, actually for a little bit, I was only going to one meeting a week. Um, and it's hard to not get to as many meetings as you're used to. And it was important for me to use other tools. So my sponsor kept saying to me, like, meetings are not the only tool. 
you can use other tools. You can make phone calls. You can pray. You can read your literature. Um, it's great when they're, like, newborns because you can do so much without waking them up. Like, so she would, like, be sleeping in my arm and I could be talking on the phone or writing, you know, because she just was that totally out of it newborn sleep. Um, so I could do things like that. And another thing that's been really helpful to me is I download podcasts. So um, if you guys haven't already looked at the LA Intergroup website, they have a ton of speakers on there and all kinds of other OA websites also have um, other speakers, but the LA Intergroup has a bunch. And so I download podcasts and I drive a lot for my work. So um, there's times of the year when I'm driving like three days a week for maybe like a couple hours a day. And so I'll, I'll download podcasts and I'll just put them in my car and I'll be listening to them so it's like an extra speaker. It doesn't take the place of a meeting because there's that, you know, that face-to-face, that give and take, the ability to share, that like actually kind of being accountable because people are seeing you show up week after week in the same meeting. So those other tools don't take the place, but they've been really helpful. And, you know, it was only temporary. Like the, the those first early weeks when I was getting to one meeting a week and I was trying to scrabble and get these other tools, it was only temporary. As I kind of got more of a sense of her schedule, I was able to get to get back to two meetings a week. And, um, I mean, I highly recommend getting a babysitter if you can afford it because sometimes the negotiation with the partner just doesn't work. Um, so we paid somebody so that I could get to my one meeting a week for a while. But um, it's definitely an issue being a parent having less time that I've I've struggled with. So that's a good question. Um, so we're out of questions, but I would uh, I just wanted to add something if I could because I hear a lot of people in the program talking about um, waking during pregnancy and. Um, and a lot of the people that I know who stayed abstinent during pregnancy only gained like the requisite, you know, seven, seven to fifteen pounds or whatever the, you know, uh, you know. I mean, I guess I'm talking about not including the baby, like the the after you give birth, what you're left with, um, and uh, and that just wasn't my experience at all. I I gained like with each pregnancy, I think I gained like fifty pounds or something like that. I mean, my weight went like. Whoosh, and, um, and I really had to, you know, and part of that was because um, some of my stuff early on, like I had to eat every two hours or I got nauseous. And then also just, you know, I'm a, I'm a compulsive overeater and unless I'm, you know, doing a way to measure food plan, I will gain weight. Like that's sort of my, been my experience. And um, so, so I, I just, you know, even, even if it, I guess, I guess I would just say, even if you're kind of gaining more weight during pregnancy, like than you're supposed to or whatever. Um, you know, I felt like afterwards getting sort of right back on my food plan, you know, I lost all the weight, got that to my pre-pregnancy weight, and then, like, got pregnant a week later with number two. So, so you know, and I and then, and then I've, again, you know, this last time, I've and it, it took me, uh, you know, a little over a year each time, but um, but just, just so, you know, it's, it's definitely very individual, the, the weight gain and the cravings and all that stuff. So just a reassurance to people out there who've gained a lot of weight in pregnancy.
So uh, it's now time to close the meeting. Let's thank our speakers and all who have done service. Um, please stand and join hands as we close with the OA Promise.